A man there was in the land of Uz, Job his name. And the man was blameless and upright and feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons were born to him and three daughters, and his flocks came to 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yokes of cattle, 500 donkeys and a great abundance of workers. And that man was greater than all the dwellers of the east. And his sons would go and hold a feast in each one's house on a set day, and they would call to their sisters to eat and drink with them. And it happened when the days of the feast came round that Job would send and consecrate them and rise early in the morning and offer up burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job thought, perhaps my sons have offended and cursed God in their hearts. Thus would Job do at all times. And one day the sons of God came to stand in attendance before the Lord, and the adversary too came among them. And the Lord said to the accuser, from where have you come? The accuser answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to the accuser, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to the adversary, Behold, all he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. That was the beginning of the book of Job, chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. And so if you don't know me, I'm Jonathan Young, and... Uh, me, my wife, Mackenzie, and Kirk, who did communion, we came out here to work with college students and young adults. And, um, and one day, uh, Mackenzie was having sort of a bad day, and I was encouraging her um, with encouragement from the book of Job because I'd been studying it recently. And originally, I was going to speak on something I thought might be more relevant, but Mackenzie encouraged me to speak on this instead. And I think she's right, and I think it is better. And I think it is relevant in a pretty strong way, in the same way that it was when it was written down in Hebrew a long time ago. And so we will look at the book of Job. So if you would, uh, I'll do some handouts in a second to look out, but um, I wanted to wait so that they weren't distracting um, during communion and singing. But so Luis, whenever you're ready, it's go time. Oh, oh, you already did it. Okay. Um, Okay, well, to do a quick overview, there's two chapters of a story in the book of Job, and then 39 chapters of pure poetry, different characters giving different poetic speeches, and then one final chapter that returns to the story and concludes it. And I really feel that it's the best poem ever written. I've spent a lot of time studying it, and then more time to get ready for this. 
and I feel really blown away and I can't uh, share everything during this time but I hope to at least get the ball rolling with some ideas and uh, hope that you can read it on your own afterwards and maybe be thinking of some of the same things and one thing that I had a whole section on but almost completely cut it because I wanted to focus but is worth pointing out a little bit is that the book of Job is actually really funny it's a really humorous book um, but is able to find a really strong balance between staying genuine and sympathetic towards Job while also humorously highlighting the absurdity of his situation and his friend's failure to explain it. And it boldly affirms the worldview that Job points out, which is that life is absurd. And so I'm going to return to the frame story. This is picking up where I left off in chapter one. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burnt up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And so afterwards, Job does the opposite of what Satan predicts, and instead of cursing God, he blesses God. And so the next heavenly assembly, Satan asks for and receives permission to physically attack him. And so Job lies covered in ash, scratching his sores with broken pottery, and his wife comforts him with a nice message, curse God and die. And so um, I don't always uh, make it clear when I'm joking, but uh, sometimes I am, and that was, it wasn't a nice message when she said that, but so in the handouts, I want to look at the first page. I have various excerpts, some for you to read on your own after, but some I'll read from. Uh, the book has, um, like I said, lots of poetry, and the intensity heightens, and there's lots of surprises, but it starts off pretty intense. And the first surprise is Job, who we know is blameless and innocent, and there's no one like him. After he mourns for seven days and his friends come to comfort him, he opens his mouth and says a pretty shocking speech. And this is on that first page. Annul the day that I was born, and the night that said a man is conceived. That day let it be darkness, 
Let God above not seek it out, nor brightness shine upon it. Let darkness, death's shadow, foul it. Let a cloud mass rest upon it. Let day gloom dismay it. Oh, let that night be barren. Let it have no song of joy. Let the day cursors hex it, those ready to rouse Leviathan. Let its twilight stars go dark. Let it hope for day in vain. And let it not see the eyelids of dawn, for it did not shut the belly's doors to hide wretchedness from my eyes. Why did I not die from the womb? From the belly come out, breathe my last. Why give light to the wretched and life to the deeply embittered who wait for death in vain, dig for it more than for treasure, who rejoice at the tomb, are glad when they find the grave. To a man whose way is obscured and God has hedged him about, for before my bread, my moaning comes and my roar pours out like water. For I feared a thing, it befell me. What I dreaded came upon me. I was not quiet, I was not still. I had no repose, and trouble came. So, like I said, the poetry starts off intense. Job wants the day he was born removed, but that's not enough. So he wants to go farther back and cancel his conception. And he wants it so bad that he wants to bring in the day cursors of Leviathan to help him curse that day. And so he moves from birth to the womb and also moves later to the tomb with an intense comparison of the womb and the tomb, covering him in darkness where he'd be safe, where he never exists, either will do. And so I want to talk about the Leviathan because, just for a second, because it has such a major role in the book of Job and also two of my favorite verses, which I'll talk about, come from chapter 41. And chapter 41 is the last chapter of the poetry and the whole chapter start to finish is about the Leviathan. And so you see here the Leviathan seems to be something spiritual or mythological since it has its own group devoted to it who do things like cursed days. And the best, uh, the best theory of what the Leviathan is, is on the spiritual or mythological side is a chaos monster. And a chaos monster is what it sounds like. It's in ancient cultures, a monster in their mythology that represents chaos and we have lots of references to them and the Leviathan and a lot of verses fit the, fits the bill really quickly for uh, Israel's version of that. And so I have some ancient depictions of that and then I also have some modern day drawings of the Leviathan and I have some fossils of giant crocodiles because unlike other mythologies in which they believe in chaos monsters and gods, but they never talk about um, how you can actually see them or how they're actually here and go look at them. The Leviathan is referred as a real creature in the natural world. And so that makes it a little bit of a mystery in that, but the best theory on the natural side is 
a giant crocodile, which there are many species of that are now extinct, but um, I thought the pictures were really fascinating. And so the verses about it that describe it, especially chapter 41, really fits the bill for a crocodile. And especially when you look at some of those fossils and think of how scary that would be if you're in a dinky little ancient boat and you see these eyes peeping out of the water at you. Um, but anyways, I'll talk more about that and what it is uh, So if you later. So if you want to know, then pay attention. And so um, going to, if you want to flip the page, the second surprise is that Job's friends who came to comfort him um, turned on him pretty quickly, and it doesn't take much. And so their names are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And we won't read all of these verses because, well, you'll always have this booklet. You won't always have me. So I'm going to speak some for that. And, uh, and But we will look at the the bottom right, more excerpts of Job speaking, because I want to re-emphasize how shocking some of the stuff Job says is. He pours, talking about God, this is Job speaking in chapter 12. He pours forth scorn on princes, and the belt of the nobles he slackens, lays bare depths from the darkness, and brings out to light death's shadow, raises nations high and destroys them, flattens nations and leads them away, stuns the mind of the people's leaders, makes them wander in trackless waste. They grope in darkness without light. He makes them wander like drunken men. So Job seems to consider God. He seems to imply that his view of God is that God is pointlessly cruel and toying with humor in humans. Uh, for humor, but again, because it's poetry, he can't imply that, but it is a little complex. And he also seems to uh, sarcastically quote a psalm, which in Psalm 86, which is, if you flip the page, it's the top of the right page. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? And then Job, on the other hand, seems to almost, seems to, again, emphasize, sort of sarcastically quote it, saying, I'm sickened, I won't live forever. Let me be, for my days are a mere breath. What is man that you make him great? and you pay heed to him. You single him out every morning, every moment, examine him. How long till you turn away from me? For you don't let me go while I swallow my spit. For soon I shall lie in the dust. You will seek me, and I shall be gone. Um, but, so while Job pours out his heart, it's also, we see, complex and nuanced, because he says when talking about wisdom, and this is, a little bit down. Fear of the master, that is wisdom, and the shunning of evil is insight. Then towards the bottom, where I have been bold, he says, but I know my redeemer lives, and in the end, he will stand up on earth. And after they flay my skin, 
from my flesh, I shall behold God. So then after their debates, there is a third surprise in that it turns out there was someone else there just watching them, and he pops up and decides to explain all of this, and his name is Elihu. So if you flip the page on the right page, I have a little section for Elihu, um, who's a character that's uh, pretty funny that I could spend a good bit of time on, but need to stay focused. So, But basically, he's a parody character. He is, well, the poet knows that there are going to be people in the audience who want to interpret this as, well, Job, some of the stuff he said was wrong, and some of the stuff the friend said were wrong too. And the poet somewhat parodies this with Elihu, who is a member of the audience. And in the ancient world, literature was read out loud, um, and there would be an audience, and you listened to it, so you didn't read it very much. So when this was read, it would be read out loud to an audience. And Elihu, who speaks more modern Hebrew than the rest of them and is an audience member in the poem, he pops up and says he's going to interpret this. And uh, it seems like there's a good guess by scholars that after someone would read a book like this, someone would stand up and then explain it to the audience. And this is a bit of a parody of that. But so Elihu's poetry is still written really clever in that it has lots of irony and also it sets up really well the next surprise, which is out of nowhere, God all of a sudden joins the debate. And if you know what happens, it may not be, you may not catch, but it's almost as a twist ending. There's no, there's nothing that would imply God is going to join the chat, but he does, and in fact, Job frequently talks about how he wishes he could have a moment with God, and everyone tells him it's ridiculous. But then this is reading at the section under Elihu, God's introduction. These are the very last sentences of Elihu, and then the verse right after Elihu finishes. A clear sky arrives out of the north with God is terrible majesty, the almighty he does not come forth excellent in power, and in judgment and in plenty of justice he will not come down. Therefore men fear him, for he does not regard any who are wise in heart. Then the Lord responded to Job from a hurricane or whirlwind or great storm, and he said, so uh, kind of hilariously the poet just introduces God in a straightforward way, and to everyone's surprise, a clear sky does not arrive out of the north, but a hurricane. And God does lower himself, and he does regard Job. And he gives a speech which is by far the best poetry of the book. And so I'm going to read some quick excerpts which aren't on here, and I'm going to pull up real quick to give you... Um, a flavor of God's speech, which hopefully on your own today, you can read on your own. It's 
chapters 38 through 41, but I'm just going to fly through with some excerpts. And the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, and he said, Who is this who darkens counsel and words without knowledge? Where were you when I founded earth? Tell if you know understanding. Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Who hedged the sea with double doors when it gushed forth from the womb? When I make cloud its clothing, and thick mist its swaddling bands? Tell if you know it all, where is the way that light dwells, and darkness, where is its place, that you might take it to its home, and understand the paths to its house? Have you come into the storehouse of snow, the storehouse of hail, have you seen? By what way does the west wind fan out, the east wind whip over the earth, who split a channel for the torrent and a way for the thunderstorm, to rain on a land without man, wilderness bare of humankind? Does the rain have a father, or who begot the drops of dew? From whose belly did the ice come forth, to the frost of heavens who gave birth? Do you know the laws of heavens that you can fix their rule on earth? Can you hunt prey for the lion, fill the king of beasts' appetite? Who readies the raven's prey when its young cry out to God and stray deprived of food? Do you know the mountain goat's birth time or mark the calving of the gazelles? They crouch burst forth with their babes. Their young they push out into the world. Their offspring badden, grow big in the wild. They go out and do not return. Who set the wild donkey free? He scoffs at the bustling city. By your words does the eagle mount and set his nest on high. His chicks lap up blood. Where the slain are, there he is. Could you draw Leviathan with a hook and with a cord press down his tongue? Could you put a lead line in his nose and with a fish hook pierce his cheek? Would he seal a pact with you that you could take him as a lifelong slave? Could you haggle over him and divide him among the traitors? No fierce one could arouse him. And who before me could spend up? Who can pry open the doors of his face? All around his teeth is horror. His sneezings shoot out light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of dawn. When he rears up, the gods are frightened. When he crashes down, they cringe. Who overtakes him with the sword? It will not avail. He leaves a shining wake behind him. One would think the deep to have white hair. And then... Maybe most surprisingly is in a poem which deals a lot with how unclear things are. God says to Job and his friends in black and white terms that Job was 100% honest and his friends were 100% wrong, which is something that's confusing to a lot of the audience. But um, I don't have a direct answer, but I think it's worth uh, noting a few things, which is that Job, his speeches, even in anger, there were a lot better than Job giving up on God and turning to idolatry. And God values a relationship more than anything. And he does lower himself, whether you're angry or not. And he knows you're angry, and it'd be dishonest to deny your feelings and put on a show. And sometimes our heart needs to get things out and give it to God. 
And one reason the book of Job has resonated with people for such a long time is many people have these feelings too, even if they don't say it. And when we read it, we feel understood. And our feelings feel valid because God says they're valid. And so in God's speech, he speaks about the creation in a way only poetry could do. Rather than talking about the legal world like Job does when he declares God's unfairness, God talks about the laws of nature. The donkey flees from civilization into the wilderness. In nature, the eagle kills the weak and feeds its blood to her babies. Very difficult to mold into any sort of system that we're used to doing with. But a perfect example of the oxymoron of God holding back violent forces and sustaining them because they're forces of life. And God unflinchingly asserts the harsh truth of the animal kingdom. And unlike the friend's cliche half-truths, God speaks of the difficult truths of life, even harsher than Job does. And in contrast to the chapter 3 poem, which Job speaks focusing in and in on himself, Job has seen too much now and wants to be enclosed by dark doors into the blackness of the womb or the tomb. God's poem is about turning on the lights, showing a panoramic vision of the universe and earth with each existing thing having its own intrinsic and strange beauty. And so this is specifically what I shared with Mackenzie to encourage her is that even though God's answer may seem like he's saying a generic, who are you to question me? The, the answer still resonates with us. And it's because it's more than that. And the book itself isn't logic spiced up by poetry, but the argument is in the poetry and that everything God says rhymes with something Job said previously. And every single thing that Job says is anticipating something God will say, teaching us how to understand each other. So that Job's speeches are incomplete without God's speeches, and God's are incomplete without Job's. And there are two halves that make a beautiful whole poem, which shows a lot about God's relationship with man. And it's an intimate and personal response. And when you look at it this way, the answer is more clear. As Job cries out for an eclipse at the beginning, God asks him, how does he know that that's what would be best for the world? Does he know that's what would be best for all of creation? It's an extreme example of how do you know the alternative would be any better? What would happen if you got your wish? God speaks of a delicate and powerful balance in the universe and in creation in which even a butterfly can cause a hurricane in the wrong place at the wrong time. And Job is right that the absurd world is chaotic, but there's another world, just like Genesis 1 verse 2 says, the earth was deep and without void, but the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And so I have the last two pages inside the booklet. I have a comparison of two of the excerpts I've read, one from Job's opening poem and one from God's concluding poem. And I highlighted in different colors 
to try and show some of the ways they line up and rhyme with each other. And so we can look at it for a sec, but as I was putting it together and looking at everything and highlighting it, I thought that, um, I don't know, it was actually really emotional, and I hope that this is something you would look at and meditate on your own afterwards. But Job cries out, and um, you can, you might not follow me because I'm just going to jump around, but you can look at it all you want after and then be happy. But that day, let it be darkness. And God says, darkness, where is its place? Job says, let God above not seek it out, nor brightness shine upon it. God says, where is the way that light dwells? And Job says, let that night be barren. Let it have no song of joy. God says, where were you? when I founded earth, or when the morning stars sang together and the sons of God shouted for joy. Let it hope for a day in vain, and let it not see the eyelids of dawn. Have you commanded the morning, appointed the dawn to its place? Why did I not die from the womb, from the belly come out, breathe my last? Who hedged the sea with double doors when it gushed forth from the womb? To a man whose way is obscured, and God has hedged him about, and then I have tiny at the bottom right of the left page because, um, I don't know, I just wanted to separate it and that looked like a good place. God opened his speech by saying, who is this who obscures counsel without knowledge? And then two of my favorite verses, which I have on the back, are from God's section on the Leviathan. His sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of dawn. And then behind him, he leaves a shining wake. And like I said, how these are kind of random on their own, when you combine it with Job's, they have a special meaning. And the Leviathan, what the best explanation is, is that it's both mythological and spiritual and real in the natural world, which both a uh, species of crocodile, probably, and a chaos monster. In the ancient world, there wasn't a separation between the natural and supernatural. And you may have heard this. I've heard it some when people speak on Exodus, but the ten plagues would have had an even further connotation than God showing his power. But when God blots out the sun, everyone is thinking even beyond that to God showing his power over the sun gods. And when he turns the Nile to blood, people see his power. But even beyond that, they hear the connotation that God is more powerful than the Nile gods. And so, in the same way, God speaks of the species of crocodile, but the connotation for everyone here is that he's speaking both about a crocodile and chaos itself as a force of nature and life. And so I have two quotes. I'm just, these are from a 
translation and commentary I read that I like a lot called the Wisdom Books, and I figured he said it better than I would, so I just put the quotes down. But I'll read Job's verse and then God's verse and then the quote. Let its twilight stars go dark, let it hope for day in vain, and let it not see the eyelids of dawn. And the Lord says, his sneezings flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyelids of dawn. And then from the book, this verset is one of the most arresting and daring moves of the Job poet. He had used this striking image at the beginning of the book in Job's death wish poem. Now he brings it back, not hesitating to locate an image of exquisite beauty at the heart of terror. It is precisely this paradox that epitomizes his vision of Leviathan, a frightening and alien creature, yet in God's creation also a thing of beauty. And then one of my other favorite verses. I have Job's first. That day let it be darkness. Let God above not seek it out, nor brightness shine upon it. And God says, behind him he leaves a shining wake. Now I'll just read the quotes. The last visual sighting of Leviathan is of his wake as he turns through the water and out of the field of human vision. It is noticeable that this whole poem, which began with the light of the morning stars and a question about where light dwells, concludes with a wake shining on the surface of the abyss. And so the Leviathan leaves light in its wake. And in a way, it's an image of the message of the book, one of the messages which is sometimes beautiful things come out of horrible tragedy with the book itself being ironically an example of out of Job's horrible tragedy, we have the book which has comforted people through such a long time. And I know I've seen in my life some of the best people I know I've had the hardest paths, and some of the sweetest people I know have had hard paths. And so I know that, um, well, I have tried my best to communicate the encouragement I've found, and I hope that you would meditate on this and, um, and read the book of Job on your own and be encouraged. And I think it's important to remember that God encourages us to encourage others. And that's why I mentioned me encouraging Mackenzie. Because especially as a church, that's one of the greatest things we can offer. And I know as we're exiting the phase of social distancing at some point soon we'll start talking about small groups and in my opinion small groups are one of the best most concrete ways of a church being encouraging to each other and so my dream is for everyone to really strongly consider that and also for small groups to have at least a few teens and at least a few young adults and at least a few different older people too or middle-aged plus people 
And so, um, because we are here uh, to reach young adults and students, but we want, um, and they need a lot more than us, and they need mentors to pour into them and to encourage them, and teens need it too, and they need to be encouraging and pouring into each other as well. And so, um, like I said, I hope everyone will think on this, and also I hope that you'll be thinking and praying about small groups and just the opportunity that we'll have there. And so, um, yeah, so I think now we'll do another good way of encouragement and we can all sing. So thank you.